Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to challenge you to follow Christ, and to inspire you to lead a consecrated life. How do you think of the Holy Spirit? In this lecture, we'll build up a biblical theology of the Spirit in an effort to comprehend its variegated facets. We'll consider the Old Testament and the Synoptic Gospels before spending a good deal of time in John, looking at the fascinating way that Jesus talks about the Spirit in the Upper Room Discourse. Here now is Theology 14, the Holy Spirit. What we're going to do here is make our way through the Bible, develop a biblical theology of pneumatology, starting with the Old Testament, step one. Step two, look at the synoptic gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Then John really has some interesting things to say about the Spirit that is not in the rest of the Bible that uh, really requires special attention. And that's uh, where we're going to spend a little extra time. And then we'll look at the rest of the New Testament. All right, so that's our goal for this lecture. This is how the word ruach is translated in the Old Testament. Ruach, the Hebrew word for Holy Spirit or for Spirit, is translated many different ways in the, the Hebrew Bible. So it's translated as air, as anger, as blast as breath, look at these big, let's just look at the big ones. I'll, I'll, I'll read it through and then we'll look at the big ones. Air, anger, blast, breath, breathless, cool, courage, despondency, exposed, grief, heart, inspired, mind, motives, points, side, sides, spirit, spirit, capital S, lowercase s, spirits, strength, temper, thoughts, trustworthy, wind, winds, windy, wrath. Let's look at the big, the big points here, which is certainly breath 31 times. Spirit with a capital S, spirit with a lowercase s, and then wind, 98 times. So, my definition to you on what the word ruach means is breath, spirit, wind. Triple definition. Okay, those are the three most common usages of this word. So that means that they don't have a separate word for wind than they have for spirit. It means the same. Just so happens that English, we, don't, we, don't, we have different words for these things. Okay? Different words for these concepts. This is a quote from the Dictionary of Judaism in the Biblical Period by Jacob Neusner. And he writes, When used of living beings, ruach refers to the essence of the life and vitality in both human beings and animals that is manifested through movement and breathing. Alright, so his big point there was the essence of life and vitality. Life and vitality. What? Okay, so you have a dead chicken and a live chicken, right? And, and let's say you're living in ancient times. You're like, well, what's the difference? Well, the live one has spirit and the other one doesn't. They have life. They have vitality uh, manifested through movement and breathing. Look, we'll get theological, but just to start with, let's get a handle of the word. Just as spirit was considered the essence of human life, so analogously the term spirit was used of the presence, activity, and power of God. So when we talk about spirit in general, we're talking about breath, the mysterious animating principle in an animal or a human. In fact, the word animal is related to the word spirit. The word animal, well, let's look it up. Animal etymology. As a noun from the Latin animal, based on the Latin animalis, having breath, from anima, which is the word for breath. So in Latin, you have the word spiritus and you have the word anima, which we translate into like animate, right? And so an animal is a creature that's animated or that's, that's moving. That was free, okay, I'm not charging you for that. Anyhow, the, <laughs> so the spirit is this life-giving power or force, and so when it's referred to an animal, it means what makes them alive, when it's referred to God, it means his presence, his activity, and his power. Those three things are good, solid definitions for what it means, what the Spirit of God is. It's God's activity, his presence, and his power. 
he goes on in this definition to say that it is characteristics that demonstrate that God is truly a living God. This is from your dictionary, the New Bible Dictionary. It says, at its heart, the Spirit is the experience of a mysterious, awesome power, the mighty, invisible force of the wind, the, the mystery of vitality, the, other, the otherly power that transforms all ruach, all manifestations of divine energy. That's a cool definition. So spirit is it's an animating principle that's hard to pin down. It's mysterious, and yet it brings life into everything. James Dunn, in his book, Christology on the Making, writes, There can be little doubt that from the earliest stages of pre-Christian Judaism, spirit, ruach, denoted power, the awful, mysterious force of the wind, of the breath of life, of ecstatic inspiration. In other words, on this understanding, Spirit of God is in no sense distinct from God, but it is simply the power of God, God Himself acting powerfully in nature and upon men. That right there is a, is a really good line. The Spirit of God is a way of talking about God Himself acting powerfully in nature and upon men or upon people, right? Here are examples of the way the word ruach is used in the Hebrew Bible. In Numbers 11, the Spirit of God is taken from one and distributed to others. In a number of other places, many places, the Spirit of God inspires prophecy. The Spirit is a way that God speaks to His people. It leads someone to a different location. The Spirit transports someone from one location to another. And it's defined in parallel with the anointing of the Lord. The Spirit empowers leaders to judge and rule the people. It imparts warlike energy and confidence. It supplies supernatural strength. Remember Samson? It causes righteous anger. It imparts regeneration or peace. And it gives the Messiah wisdom, understanding, counsel, strength, knowledge, the fear of Yahweh, and the ability to judge justly. It endows artisans with skill, and it's defined in parallel to the presence of God. So each of these different usages of the word spirit is something God enables or causes people to be able to do or to do. In other words, it is God in action in someone's life. So whether we're talking about Samson pulling down the pillars of the Philistine fort, or we're talking about the artisans who made the tabernacle, the Spirit is empowering this to happen. Each of these listed functions of the Spirit refers to the one God, Yahweh, in action. The Spirit of God is one of the primary ways of talking about God's involvement in His creation. So, I want to ask you the question, is God here or is He, or is he in heaven above? What do you think? Huh? I guess he's in heaven. He's in heaven? Yeah. Oh, okay, alright, I'm not going to argue with that. So Cosmos says God is in heaven. Do you think God is not here? Do you think God is here? Is God with us? He is, because the Bible is the only presence. So you think God is with us? I think He's here. Yeah. Yeah, there's one sense in which God is not here. He's in heaven. And another sense in which God is here. And He is aware of what's going on on earth. And He is involved with people's lives. And He is doing things in our world. So... This is a classic problem that thinkers have wrestled with over the centuries, and it's the issue of transcendence versus eminence. Transcendence is the idea that God is other. He's above us, he's beyond us, he's somewhere else. He's too holy to come here or else we would all perish. In fact, God says that to Moses at one point. He says, you can't see my face and live. And so we see at the very end of the Bible that God finally comes down to dwell with us on the earth. But only once the earth is suitably or is suited for God to be with us. And that takes a while for, after Jesus comes back to get the world ready for that. We see that God was walking in the cool of the day in the beginning with Adam and Eve. But at the same time, God is imminent. He is present. He is here. He knows all of your thoughts. There's even a scripture Jesus says that he knows all the hairs on your head. 
It doesn't get much closer. I don't even know how many hairs are on your head, Luke. <laughs> I mean, how many hairs are... Who, who cares? I mean, wh- the point of that is God is intimately aware of minute details in our lives to such a degree that he knows our hair count. So how did they deal with this in the Bible? They employed literary metaphors, and there were three main ones they used. The Word, the Spirit, and the Wisdom. God's Word, God's Spirit, God's Wisdom. And these are ways of talking about God doing something on earth while preserving the fact that He's not on earth, He's still in heaven. So how does God stay in heaven and yet be involved in people's lives? The Spirit. Problem solved. (laughs) Or His Word. He sent out His Word and it healed them. Or His wisdom according to certain verses from the uh, Old Testament. Is the Spirit personal or is it impersonal? Think of the analogy of a handwritten letter. Have any of you ever written a handwritten letter? Yeah, okay. Like half the class. Not everybody. Have you ever written a handwritten? Okay, what about you? All right, so you've all done this. You've, You've done this sort of like barbaric practice where you take this sort of ink device here and and you you scribe on a flattened tree some sort of message in sloppy non-printed handwriting you've done that right is that letter personal or impersonal is okay it's personal what about a text if you send somebody a text is that personal or impersonal impersonal it's impersonal a message is not a person We all agree with that, right? The message, the text message or the letter he wrote is not a person, but it's the expression of a person. It is personal, not a person. For example, the Jehovah's Witnesses, which is another Christian denomination, they believe, they teach that the Holy Spirit is an impersonal force and they compare it to electricity. So the way electricity works is you flip the switch, Electricity turns on, you flip it again, it turns off. It's a mysterious power, but it's completely impersonal. Like the electricity did not care how many times I turned it on or off, because electricity doesn't have emotions. I feel like that definition falls short because what we see of the use of the word spirit in the, in the Bible, I mean, there, there can be impersonal aspects to it, but if it's God in action, if it's God involved in your life, or involved in someone else's life, then of course it is personal. So I don't wanna say that the spirit is impersonal. I wanna say that it is personal, but it's not a separate person than the Father. It is the Father doing something in our world. Just like if you wrote a letter to someone, that's not actually you there when they receive it. But in another sense, it is you there because your words are there. You see how that works? Okay. The last word you just said, just I say Oh, the last thing I said? The Holy Spirit is God in action among us, doing things, whether it's empowering us, giving us discernment, helping us to have wisdom, to know what to do, or perform a miracle even. It's not impersonal. It's, it's personal, but it's not a person. It's God expressing himself from a distance, so to speak, just like you writing a letter and sending it to a friend. I'm going to show you more on this before I'm done here so that it'll sink in a lot better. Patrick Navis wrote a book, and it's called Divine Truth or Human Tradition, and he says this about the Spirit. Perhaps the matter is best put in terms like these. The Spirit is God's active approach to us. That is a pretty darn good definition there. The Spirit is God's active approach to us. Where the Spirit operates, there God Himself is at work. The Spirit is not a thing over against God, but a way of expressing God in His relation to us. Where the Spirit is given a personal quality, such as teaching, revealing, witnessing, interceding, creating, and so on, it is not as an entity distinct from God, but as God Himself doing these things and yet not compromising his transcendence. Sometimes when a brother writes it down like that, I mean, it's just, he, I feel like he nailed that. 
So that was point number one, how is the Spirit used in the Old Testament? Now we're going to start looking at how the Spirit, Pneuma, is used in the New Testament. The first part we're going to look at of the New Testament is the Synoptic Gospels. The Synoptic Gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Here we see that the Holy Spirit caused the generation of life in the Virgin Mary. That's a key text, Luke 1.35. I'll just read it to you. It says, The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. This is a key text because what we have here is a parallelism where the same idea is repeated twice. The first time it says, See if you can notice it here. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. So that's line one. Line two, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So you see that this, the Holy Spirit is in parallel with the power of the Most High. And come upon you is in parallel with overshadow you. So this is a good way to equate terms when we have a synonymous parallelism. And what we're seeing is that the Holy Spirit is in this verse at least, used to refer to the power of the Most High. So the Spirit is not a separate person from God, but God Himself in action. Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit. That's a prophecy of John the Baptist. It descended upon Christ at His baptism. It drove Jesus to go into the wilderness. After his baptism, it says the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. It gave the disciple words to speak when on trial. It enabled Christ to proclaim justice. It empowered the Messiah to cast out demons. It inspired David to write the Psalms. It caused prophetic utterances. It was upon Simeon. It reveals truth about the future. It empowered Jesus. It is given by the Father to those who ask. And then we get this key text from Matthew 12, 28, and Luke eleven twenty. This is a really fascinating parallel between these two verses because in Matthew 12, 28, it says, But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. However, when we get to the parallel in Luke eleven twenty, it says, If I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Clearly equating the Spirit of God with the finger of God. That makes perfect sense if you think of the Spirit as God doing something. Obviously, God doesn't have fingers. But what does it mean when we say the finger of God, the arm of God, the arm of the Lord, right? We're saying God's doing something. God's in action. What's God doing? He's casting out demons through Jesus. The Spirit is the means by which God acts. <laughs> Much like a body. I interact with the world through my body. I don't know if you've noticed that. You interact with the world through your body too, right? From the way you are able to see, what do, how, do we, how do we see? Eyeballs attached to optic nerves, attached to some pretty fancy brain parts that perceive all of that, right? That's like how we're able to perceive the world. We have ears that are able to hear, and then our brain is able to process that audio and make sense out of it, understand the ideas behind the sounds. Our bodies are how, we, are how we perceive the world. So it makes sense that Jesus would say, well, I'm casting out spirits by the finger of God. God's actually the one doing it, but he's involved, so it's, it's portraying him as having a body. All right, the spirit in John. That's our next point. So we looked at the spirit in the Old Testament, the spirit in the synoptics, and we found that essentially they were the same. Same kind of usage. God in action. Now we get to the Spirit in John, and we get some new insight into the way the Holy Spirit works. In the Gospel of John, we see some fairly unremarkable usages of the Spirit. It talks about something descending from heaven to remain upon Jesus, right? It came in the form of a dove upon Jesus. It was the means by which one is born again. Jesus said, unless you're born of the Spirit, in John 3. It's an enablement for Christ to speak the words of God. It's a way in which one worships the Father. Jesus said, the true worshipers will worship me in spirit and in truth, in John 4. It's the essential nature of God. God is spirit, a life giver, something to be received by the disciples. And then we get to John 7.39. This is a key verse because it says something very strange. It says, but this he spoke of the Spirit, 
which those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Hold on a second. I've just run you through, I don't know, a few dozen instances, usages of the word Spirit in the Old Testament, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, even in John itself, and now we're going to say the Spirit was not yet given. How is that possible? There must be, here's a solution, there must be some newness to the Spirit they would receive, and this is especially after Jesus left, compared to what was previously available to warrant such strong language. So, obviously God's Spirit is active in the world before the time of Jesus, but after the time of Jesus, there is something new that is so significant that Jesus would be willing to say, the Spirit has not yet even come. So let's get into what that is. A lot of this comes down to us from the upper room discourse, which is John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. That chunk of the Gospel of John is the upper room discourse, especially 14 through 16. That's the part we're focused on here. And Jesus talks about several important subjects during that discourse, but one of the ones he talks about the most is the Spirit, and it's termed the paraclete. Per, not parakeet. That's a bird. Paraclete. Okay? And this is a word that's not used of the Spirit before this, and it's only used once outside of this one discourse in John 14 to 16. And it's translated differently in different versions. Some versions are going to use the word advocate. The old English versions use the word comforter. Other modern versions use the word helper. So whether you want to use advocate, comforter, or helper, it's referring to a similar idea. John 14, 17 says, the spirit or the advocate, the, the paraclete, I'm just going to use paraclete because it's, it's the English equivalent of the Greek word. The paraclete abides with you. 14.26, it will teach you all things. 14.26, again, it will bring to your remembrance. 15.26, it will testify about me, Jesus. 16.8, it convicts the world. 16.13, it will guide you into all truth. It will not speak on its own initiative. Hears, speaks, discloses. 16.14, will glorify me. 16.14, again, take of mine and disclose to you. So the fact that the Spirit is sometimes depicted as teaching, speaking, interceding, guiding, and helping in the Scriptures has influenced many theologians to conclude that the Spirit must be a distinct person like God the Father and Jesus Christ. But because the Holy Spirit does not have a personal proper name like the Father and Son, is never shown to be an object of worship or recipient of prayer, and never depicted or identified as a member of a triune God in Scripture, other Bible students believe that these are simply a few of numerous examples where the Bible uses the common linguistic device of personification. That is, the practice of ascribing personal attributes or qualities to subjects that are not actually or literally persons. So, Let's talk about personification for a minute here. In John 16.25, let me back up for a second. Throughout the Bible, we see the word spirit used a lot, and it's non-controversial. However, when we get to this one little part of the Gospel of John, chapters 14, 15, and 16, suddenly, now the spirit we see being discussed as a he rather than an it. Now, the word Spirit, in the Old Testament, ruach, is feminine. The word pnevma, in the New Testament, the Greek, is neuter. And then the word paraclete, which is translated advocate, or helper, the Greek is parakletos, is masculine. So, talk about a gender identity disorder. I mean... The Spirit is feminine in the Old Testament, neuter in the New Testament, and then it's one chunk of John, verses, or chapters 14 and 16, it's masculine. So is the Spirit a he, a she, or an it? 
If we go by number of usages, we probably would say a she because there's probably more references in the Old Testament than anywhere else. Or an it because there's more references of the word spirit than there are of the word paraclete. However, that's not really the best way to figure things out because grammatical gender is not the same as biological gender, right? Uh, for example, a table has the gender of she in some languages. Does that mean we should say she instead of it, like I moved her? No, you didn't move her, you moved it. In English, we would just use it, okay? There are a couple of options. You can either say that the spirit is itself a person, in which case you're gonna capitalize the S, and then you're gonna say the spirit is a separate person, has its own individual consciousness, its own mind, it's distinct from the Father, and, or you're gonna say, well, actually it's lowercase spirit, and this is an instance of personification. That is to say, when you take something that is not a person and you ascribe to it personal attributes, just like we do with boats, calling them she, or there are other examples, right? What's another example of personification that we use? Your car. Yeah. What do you say about a car? You it, usually say it's she. She for a car as well, yeah. My car was key. Well, Alyssa had a he car. Uh, <laughs> did you have like one of those muscle cars made all that noise when you drove by? No. no? <laughs> all right, so we do that sometimes. We personify. Uh, sometimes, sometimes people personify their computer. They say, oh, well, Lenny's not doing so well. That's short for Lenovo. Or this, this I, had, I had one computer, it was called uh, Samantha. Uh, and uh, my wife actually got, at one point, a little jealous because I spent a lot of time with Sammy and uh, she, she was feeling a little neglected. But obviously we know what we're talking about. These are personifications. Look, uh, here's what's so great about this understanding too is that at the end of John 14 to 16, this upper room discourse, Jesus is talking about the Spirit. He's using the, the term He all over the place. And then at the very end of it, Jesus says, John 16, 25, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. So Jesus himself says he's speaking in a figure of speech. The question is, what's, what, what parts are figures of speech and, and what figure of speech is it? The figure of speech that I would suggest is that in talking about the Spirit, he's talking about it as if it's a person because he's using the figure of speech personification. Now, I want to show you some other examples of this in the Bible so that you can see how the Bible uses this term. Now, Genesis 1.10, after Cain killed Abel, God said, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Blood does not have a voice. And it cannot cry. But we're personifying the blood as if it is a person because a person has a voice. Isaiah 3.26, the gates will lament and mourn. Look, gates don't mourn. Gates don't cry. Gates swing. Gates just sit there, right? But it's talking about it in, in a personified way. Isaiah 35 says, The desert will be glad and rejoice and shout for joy. Isaiah 49, 13 says, The heavens will shout for joy. The earth rejoices. The mountains break forth into joyful shouting. Psalm 98, 8 says, The rivers <laughs> clap their hands. The mountains sing together for joy. Proverbs 8, this is the mother load right here. Proverbs 8 gives you more personification in a more concentrated way than any other place in the entire Bible, that, at least that I can think of right now. It talks about wisdom. Proverbs is all about wisdom if you ever read it. And in Proverbs, wisdom is spoken of as a female. All the ladies are like, yeah, well, duh. Of course, wisdom is a female. <laughs> it's, just an, it's just because uh, in Hebrew, the word was feminine, right? Chokmah is the word in, it's a beautiful word, chokmah. I need some more chokmah in my life. Whereas the, uh, the Greek for wisdom is Sophia. And that's a girl's name. So I don't know what it is about wisdom in women. But uh, anyhow, in Proverbs 8, wisdom is a lady who calls. And it says you have to understand her voice. She cries out at the entrance of the city. Wisdom speaks noble things and opens her lips. Wisdom dwells with prudence. 
Wisdom walks in the way of righteousness. Wisdom was a master workman with God. Maybe we would, in our modern gender-sensitive time, say work woman. But uh, the point is, wisdom was working alongside God. Some more examples of personification. In Luke 7.35, it says, Wisdom is vindicated by all her children. John 3.8, The wind blows where it wishes. Wind doesn't wish. But yet, it's a a figure of speech, personification. Romans 10.6, Righteousness based on faith speaks. 1 Corinthians 13, another super personification chapter where love is spoken of as if it is a person. Love is patient, love is kind, love is not jealous, does not brag, is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, does not seek its own. 1 John 2.27 says, The anointing teaches you and abides in you. And then in 1 John 5.7 it says, The spirit, water, and blood testify. Only humans can testify. Option number two is that it's talking about a person. All right, and I want to show you these verses because in a number of cases it says the paraclete, the advocate, will come in that John 14 to 16 upper room discourse. And then in a number of other cases it says Jesus will come. And I think we're supposed to get a main point of what's going on here. So in John 14, 16 it says, He will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. In 14.26, it says, The helper of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you. In 15.26, When the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father. John 16.7, If I do not go away, the helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. And John 16.13, When he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. In each one of these cases, it looks like the Spirit is separate from Jesus. However, in these other verses, Jesus says that He will come. 14, verse 3, I will come again and receive you to Myself. 14, 18, I will come to you. 14, 17, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in Me, and I in you. Verse 21, He who loves Me, I will love him and disclose Myself to him. Verse 23, If anyone loves Me, he will keep My word, and we will come to him, talking about him and his Father, and make our abode with him. 14, 28, I go away. I will come to you. And then 16, 17, a little while and you will see me because I go to the Father. Now, what we see here is Jesus talking about coming back. So let's say this right here is the cross, this moment in time. Jesus Jesus dies on the cross, right? And then shortly after that, you have the resurrection where he comes out of the tomb. But then after that, you have the ascension, where Jesus goes up to heaven. So Jesus is actually talking right about here. This, is, this would be the uh, Last Supper. That's where Jesus is talking. And he's saying, he's saying that he's coming back. He said, in a little while, I'm going to come back. In a little while, I will come to you. And then in other places, he says, the Spirit will come to you. The Spirit will speak on on my behalf, and and this sort of thing. So, what's he talking about? Because there are actually two major events. This one, which is yet future for us, we usually call it the parousia, also called the second coming. That's when Jesus comes back. We don't know when that day or hour will occur. But... There was also this other thing that happened about 50 days later after that uh, ascension, right? No, he was with them for four. It was 10 days after the ascension. It would be 50 days after the um, crucifixion. 50 days after the crucifixion is the day of Pentecost, right? And something major happened on the day of Pentecost, which is the Holy Spirit was poured out in a fresh, new, and exciting way. So when Jesus is here at the Last Supper, He's saying, I will come again. This is when He leaves right there. There are two possibilities. He could be referring to His ultimate second coming, or He could be referring to coming via the Spirit on the day of Pentecost to dwell within them. And that's the more reasonable understanding that we find from these verses here that I just read to you. Jesus said, once again, John 14, 3, I will come again and receive you to myself. He's like, I'm going away, but I will come again and receive you to myself. 
a little while and you will see me. Well, look, if Jesus is talking about his ultimate second coming, all those people that were there died and he never came. But if he's referring to how he was able to come through the Spirit on the day of Pentecost to dwell within our hearts, even while he's still in heaven, then it makes sense. We find the word parakletos only five times in the New Testament, four of which occur in the Gospel of John. We've already looked at those in reference to the Spirit. However, the last and most interesting is in 1 John. This is the one other place that we find the word paraclete used in the Bible. 1 John 2.1, where it says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. So the only other place in the Bible that we find the word paraclete used, it directly and unambiguously refers to Jesus in his heavenly ministry advocating for us when we sin. So what am I saying to you? I'm going to give you two more examples here. In Mark 13, 11, it says, When they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand what you are to say, but whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. And then in the parallel account of the same instance in Luke, chapter 21, verse 14, it says, So make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves, for I will give you utterance and wisdom, which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. In one place, Jesus says, the Holy Spirit will teach you what to say in that day. In another place, he says, I will teach you what to say in that day. Let me suggest to you a way to understand all of this. The Spirit is a way of talking about Jesus within us as Christians. Here's another example. Romans 8, verse 9 says, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. The Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, and Christ, it's all talking about the same reality. It's talking about how God and Christ are able to be within us, even though they're not here now, they're still in heaven, and we're waiting for the day when Jesus comes back, and then ultimately when God himself comes down and we can see his face and his name will be in our foreheads. So, let's summarize a bit. The Spirit appears to be just another way of referring to Christ's ongoing work in his heavenly ministry, a role he was preparing his disciples to understand in his last meeting with them before his death. Quote, this is from Alva Huffer's Systematic Theology. The work of Christ's Spirit as comforter, advocate, and helper was nothing other than the work of Christ himself as comforter, advocate, and helper through that divine power. So the Spirit is a way of talking about Christ being present within us. In the Old Testament, before Jesus came, it was a way of referring to God working with us. It still is a way of referring to God working with us, but the newness of the Spirit which we see on the day of Pentecost is really twofold. One is that the Spirit is now available to everyone, not just the prophet. And two, that it's also Christ directing individuals and obviously his whole, and his whole church as well. F.F. Bruce writes, He had been with them for a short time, but the other paraclete, his alter ego, would be with them permanently, not only with them, but in them. The New Bible Dictionary, once again, says, the Spirit is now definitely the Spirit of Christ, the other counselor who has taken over Jesus' role on earth. This means that Jesus is now present to the believer only and through the Holy Spirit. So what I'm saying to you is that the Spirit is not a, a separate person. It doesn't have a distinct personality. It's the way that God can be with us, and it's the way that Jesus can be with us. It's the way that Christ is able to communicate with us. John predicted that I will baptize you with water, but he, Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That, in fact, happened on the day of Pentecost. And we see that throughout the Bible, there are really a few different ways that the word spirit is used. One is in reference to God in action. One is in reference to Christ indwelling us. But then there's a third way that the Holy Spirit is spoken of, and that is as a liquid or a gift. 
Now, obviously, the spirit is not a liquid, or else, believe me, somebody would be selling it on TV. The spirit is spoken of as a liquid in a metaphorical sense. So we have a ton of scriptures that talk about how you can be filled with the spirit, talk about how the spirit is poured upon someone, or how someone is baptized in the spirit. And then the last metaphorical way they, they speak about spirit is that it's a gift. It's something given, something received. It's called a pledge or a down payment. Again, the spirit is not a person, but the projection of a person, the risen Christ within the heart of a believer. Christ is the one who searches the minds and hearts. He is the head of the body who causes the growth of the body for the building of itself in love. The risen Christ is always with us in the midst of two or three gathered in his name. Yet at the same time, he is not here. He is seated at the right hand of God in heavenly places. So how can Christ enjoy intimacy with his church even while he's in heaven? Or to put the question differently, how could he disclose himself to his disciples without the world seeing him? Christ is present through the Spirit. I, I think I've said that enough. But there are a number of Christians who believe that the Spirit is a separate person or a distinct person. It's a person with its own mind and consciousness. And this is this whole idea of the Trinity, right? Where you have the Father, you have the Son, and you have the Holy Spirit. And they're each individual persons of God. The problem with this theory that the Holy Spirit is an independent person of God is that the Spirit, it never has a name. The name of God we see throughout Scripture is Yahweh or Yehovah. The name of the Son, of course, is Jesus or Yeshua. What's the name of the Holy Spirit? It does not have a name. Persons have names, especially in the biblical culture where your name meant so much to you. Second of all, the Spirit never sends greetings. The standard greeting we see throughout the New Testament is, especially in the letters of Paul, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. If the Spirit also is an independent person, then the Father and the Son, what is the Spirit, shy? Doesn't want to say hello? Come on, that's ridiculous. He's saying grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ because... Those are the two individuals in heaven. They both function and are able to be present through the Spirit, but the Spirit is not a separate person. Or James, when James says his identity, he says, James, a bond slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't say, and of the Spirit. Or John's fellowship. Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Third of all, the Spirit is possessed or owned by God. In other words, it's called the Spirit of God. This is a possessive construction. The pen of Bob, Bob's pen, right? So the Spirit of God, God's Spirit. It's not a separate being from God. 1 Corinthians 2.11 is a key verse on this. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except for the Spirit of God. So you have a spirit. It's the, it's, it's the pointer in your mind to what you're thinking about, right? Whatever it is you're thinking about right now, that's the spirit of a man that is in him or a woman that is in her. And then you have the spirit of God. The spirit of God, is, it, it's not separate from God, but it's, it's what God is. Uh, it's aware of what, it's, it's, it's God's current mental activity, if we can call it like that. Number four, the spirit is never prayed to. I mentioned this before. And it's left out of key passages. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty-seven. 27. Where's the Spirit? Matthew 24, 36. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Where's the Spirit? It's missing. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my Father in his throne. Once again, it's about the Son and it's about the Father. So those, those are some key insights into the Spirit. Um, I do want to emphasize that there are three main ways that we see the word Spirit used in the Bible. It's referring to God in action, it's referring to Christ in action, and it refers to the gift of the Spirit, 
which is something that empowers people to do things that they wouldn't be able to do otherwise. Whether we're talking about manifestations like in 1 Corinthians, or we're talking about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians. This last category, the Spirit as a gift or a liquid, something as, like a, as a thing as opposed to a person, this is, in the, in the New Testament, is by far the most. All right, so that third category, and that's why I showed, I don't know if you caught that, but I showed you all those verses because that one is used more than any other. And I was thinking about it, like the best, like I use the, I, with you, I use the analogy of a handwritten letter, but really the best analogy I can think of is a phone call. If you receive a phone call, let's say you're on the phone right now, Madison, who would you be talking to? Probably my dad. All right. Let's just pretend for a moment you're on the phone with your dad. And Caitlin comes in the room and she says, what are you doing? And you're on the phone and you're like, I'm, I'm, talk, I'm talking to my dad. And Caitlin says, well, that's strange. I don't see your dad anywhere. And, and you're like, well, he's, he's on the phone. And she looks at the phone and she's like, I don't see him on the phone. You know, he's not in the room, he's not present, he's far away, but yet he is present. You're actually talking to a phone. And then your voice gets digitized and turned into ones and zeros, and then it's sent to a cell tower, somewhere hopefully not too far away, where then it's transmitted however many miles to somewhere else through wires, and then it gets there it comes out of the cell tower near him, and now it goes into his phone wirelessly as ones and zeros, and then his phone translates that, that signal, that digital signal of ones and zeros into an audio of a voice, and it sounds like you. It's not really you. It's, it's, a, it's a process signal that is imitating what you sound like. And it's pretty darn good, right? Which is why we don't even think about it. We're like, oh yeah, this is Madison on the phone, right? But you're not really on the phone. It's a, it's a processed digital signal. Here's my point. My point is nobody would stress about all those details. You would just say dad's on the phone because the reality is that you are communicating with him and that you're not gonna say he's not on the phone, it's a digital process of his voice that's trying to imitate the, what, it, what, what he sounds like. So it is with the Spirit. The Spirit is a way that God and Christ can be present with us. It's a way that they can communicate with us. You know what I'm saying? So the Spirit is like that, that signal that we're able to receive. It's very personal, just like talking to your dad is very personal, but at the same time, it's not actually your dad. It's a way that he can get his voice to you so that you can understand it in a, in a personal way, but that is not, does not require him to actually be there. All right, does that make any sense? Or am I, if I just like totally uh, lost you on that one? All right, so that's, that's it for pneumatology. There's a lot more that I can say about this that you can look up, especially in your Bible dictionaries on the subject and also in the Greg Dival book because he talks about this subject as well. Well, that's it for this lecture. Stay tuned next time for more Holy Spirit theology. In the meantime, I just want to make sure to plug Converge again, an event I'm very excited about coming up August 2nd to the 4th, 2019. And this is a weekend of Bible teachings, powerful praise music, and lots of festive family fun on uh, Saturday afternoon in particular in Hiram, Ohio, just outside of Cleveland. Our dream for this one-time event, please note, we do not have plans to do this Converge event again. I'm not saying it couldn't happen again, but I don't want you to miss out on this opportunity to gather together. We've got main speakers planned out for the weekend. Uh, Vince Finnegan, my dad, from New York. Calvin Chan of Ontario, Canada. John Shaneheit of Indiana. Mark Jones of Tennessee. Seth Ross of Georgia. Victor Gluckin of Rhode Island, and Peter Anson of Missouri. This is going to be an epic event. You don't want to miss it. You should sign up right now. Just pause this podcast and go sign up. ConvergeFest.com.
www.thehousingoptionsdeal.com. You can register online, see all the housing options, check out a sweet brand new promo video that's online today for the very first time. Uh, so please come and meet the extended family of God. I'll probably plug this again because I'm so excited about it. Um, just a couple of quick comments by listeners. Becky Myers writes in on the promo post I did about Converge last month, and she writes, Thank you for your hard work in planning Converge. I was so excited to hear about the concept and almost fell out of my chair when I read it would be in Ohio. Hello, it's coming to Ohio. Uh, dri- easy driving for many people in the United States. Eight hours for me, though, but you know what? I'm dedicated. I'm going to drive that eight hours. Anyhow, back to Becky. She writes, I'm in Columbus, and I plan to be there. All right, Becky. I look forward to meeting you there at Converge. Also, Eugene writes in. He says, have not been to a healing, sound-minded fellowship in forever and a day. We'll give it a try. Maybe make some sound-minded friends. Well, Eugene, we've there's all kinds of friends at this event, I assure you. Uh, sound-minded ones and probably some less sound-minded ones as well. But hey, it's the family of God and it's a real opportunity to get together with folks. Also on Theology Part 11, Jesus the Messiah, Igor wrote in saying, Great lesson, Sean. Son of God being a messianic title and understood as such by the Jews back then. Could it be that we got Jesus' identity as the Son of God in a Greek way as homoousios, genetically Son of God, of same substance rather than as a real human? Why does Luke one thirty six compare his miraculous conception to the one of John the Baptist? And why the genealogy of Joseph? Could God have used Joseph's genes miraculously? Just some thoughts. Hey, Igor, that is utterly fascinating as a hypothesis that maybe God used some of Joseph's genes to beget Jesus. Uh, I don't think we have any definitive evidence one way or another, but it certainly is a fascinating hypothesis, and one way to resolve the genealogy in Matthew issue. So uh, thanks for suggesting that. If you have suggestions on uh, the genealogy question, please write in. Come online to restitudio.org, look up Theology Part 11, Jesus the Messiah, and leave your comment there. Thanks, everybody, for listening. I'll catch you next week. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.